Um, there's actually four of us. I'm so sorry, I don't have Elizabeth's name on here, but there are four of us who are going to be talking with you today. Um, Lisa Davis, Dr. Lisa Davis, who is our assistant director at the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership, me, Chelsea Sims, and um, my colleagues, Larry Fernandez and Elizabeth Mackey. Um, they'll tell you more about themselves once we get started. Okay, so today's agenda, just to give you a, a little idea, we've got team culture and climate. First up with um, Lisa, then we'll have a break. Then we'll have team supervision with Larry, who some of you might know. Um, and then we will have a video about um, the continuum of integrated care and FSP programs. And then we'll have uh, some time to chat at the end, potentially. Here we have our learning objectives. Um, I read through them on Tuesday. I don't think that's quite necessary to go through again. Um, you can look at them yourself, but um, these are the things that we're hoping you will be able to take away with you um, after our training is completed. All right, I'm going to hand it off to Lisa. Thank you everyone for being here and um, I'm looking forward to it. So again, my name is Lisa Davis. I am an LCSW. I'm a, a social worker by training. Um, I also have a PhD in um, focusing on mental health services research in social work. And I'm the associate director of our, our DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. Um, and as Chelsea mentioned, uh, welcome back to day two of our systems-oriented care training. Um, Hopefully many of you were at part one, um, but we left off um, in part one talking about team functioning. Um, and we talked a little bit about uh, structuring team meetings. Um, we talked a bit about the trans, uh, transdisciplinary nature of uh, working on an FSP team. And we're gonna sort of follow that thread today uh, in terms of talking about team processes, but we're gonna talk about that from a slightly different angle. Um, today, what we're gonna at least start out talking about is um, a little bit more of some of the interpersonal dynamics that can unfold uh, on teams, especially in the kind of work that we do. Um, and then that's gonna segue in Larry, uh, my colleague's gonna pick up with a little bit more on supervision specifically, but, um, for now, we're gonna we're gonna think about some of the kind of core, kind of critical ingredients that go into um, the culture of a team, and especially for teams to be able to really work well together on complex tasks, which is really what we do uh, working in a public mental health system. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we all know from our direct experience that um, the way that we work together on a team, um, not only does that affect sort of our, our job satisfaction, how much we actually enjoy our jobs and how effective we're able to feel, but it, it really kind of affects our quality of life when you think about how much time we spend you know, at work. Um, and we probably have all had the experience of how difficult it can be to be part of a team where um, there's kind of a, a sense of disconnection. Maybe there's not a lot of trust. 
and how isolating and sort of demoralizing that can feel. Um, and on the flip side of that, when things are really going well, when, when we're really able to communicate and connect as a team, it can really lead to a sense of belonging and a sense of sort of shared purpose and being part of something bigger than ourselves. And so this whole area of thinking about these dynamics and what we can do uh, to try to influence them um, is something that is, is pretty impactful. Um, so let's see, uh, what, what we're gonna do next before we start delving into uh, some of these factors um, is we're gonna do a quick poll um, and I'm gonna just get a little bit of information from you all. Um, so we're gonna put up a few questions and uh, I'd like you to remember that these polls are completely anonymous. So um, we've got a couple pieces of information we'll gather. It's totally anonymous. So you can feel free to just uh, answer uh, really transparently. Um, and our first poll question is, how long have you been working in a mental health setting? How long have you been doing this work? All right, so really interesting. This is fairly evenly distributed, uh, not completely, but we've got, we've got a fair number of people um, in each of these categories, which means that some of you are maybe very new to this field. Um, we've got a lot of folks in the middle and then our biggest category is 15 years plus. So um, that's amazing. And that means that you all have a lot of knowledge and wisdom um, and would love to hear from you and have you chime in as we talk about this, because again, this is an area that we really know from experience. Um, we learn sometimes the hard way, <laughs> um, sort of what, what works and what doesn't work when we're, we're working on teams. Um, okay. so. When we, and you know, of course, again, as I mentioned, the, the way that we function as a team is directly connected as well to our ability to bring that forward to our clients. And so I just wanna also make that point that um, the good of our clients is another important reason to think about, uh, you know, what's happening on the team and whether things are working well. So one of the really, really key factors um, that really kind of provides a foundation for most of the other aspects of successful teamwork to be built upon is really having a foundation of trust and a sense of psychological safety um, with the people that we work with. And a psychologically safe environment is one where people are able to, first of all, be really open and honest about um, some of the difficulties and the struggles that they're having. Uh, they're able to acknowledge areas of confusion and, and not sort of feel like they have to hide that. Uh, they, may, they may even, you know, hopefully be able to really uh, acknowledge and own if, if there's been a mistake or, or a problem. Um, they're able to ask for help. Um, and they're also able to give really direct honest um, feedback to their colleagues about areas of disagreement, the way that their colleagues might be impacting them. And 
a psychologically safe environment means that you're able to do all of this without fear of being perceived negatively or a fear of negative consequences that might uh, impact your job or your career. And um, a, having a high degree of, of psychological safety um, it really has to do with uh, perceptions about the consequences of taking these kinds of interpersonal risks in our, our work environment. And higher degrees of psychological safety have been associated with a lot of positive outcomes. Um, for example, um, you know, uh, being able to uh, be more creative at work, uh, developing more opportunities at work, um, better outcomes with clients. Um, and part of having a, a psychologically safe environment as well is not, not only being able to be open about areas that we're struggling in, but also being able to take in feedback from others and kind of really identify where our own edge for learning is. So what are the strategies then that we could think about that might promote uh, a sense of openness, psychological safety, trust on teams, because this is so critical, especially in the work that we do, uh, that is, again, can be so complex and demanding, and also where, you know, uh, there can be a, a lot of difficult distressing uh, things that we are exposed to in the, the work that we do. Um, so even if you're not in the position of being a supervisor or a team leader, um, of course, the supervisor team leader is in a role where they have a lot of influence over potentially helping to create an environment of trust. And we'll talk about supervision in a, in, in a, in a little bit. Um, but even as a member of a team, you, we all have the ability to kind of contribute to creating a culture of psychological safety and, and sort of modeling um, and leading by example. Um, so one of, the, one of the key things that we do, can do on an individual level is kind of practice uh, developing the muscle of self-observation. So noticing when things are getting um, stirred up for us. And uh, we can also develop the skill of, of self-regulating um, and so that we can uh, choose to speak up or interact when we're having a difficult interaction. Uh, we can do that with intention and with choice rather than you know just being in a reactive position. Now, that's a lot easier said than done. Uh, but there are a lot of good self-regulatory strategies. There's a lot of mindfulness uh, things that are out there at this point, lots of resources that, that you can access. Um, we do have a lot of trainings here on mindfulness uh, and UCLA has a whole mindfulness center as well. Um, so this little exercise, which is called STOP is, is a nice mindfulness exercise that people can do. It takes about 60 seconds. And it, it stands for stop, take a breath, observe, and then proceed. And so the first step here is really to kind of just notice when something's happening on the team where we start to feel frustrated or fearful or uh, anxious or uh, 
not heard in some way. And then to kind of sort of take a beat and to step back for a moment um, and just acknowledge either what we might be feeling, what our inner dialogue is, uh, what we're telling ourselves about the situation, um, and uh, then proceeding. So we can decide in that moment whether it's the right time for us to speak up or act on the situation. Uh, maybe the timing isn't right, or we want to wait until we're not in the thick of a difficult team dynamic. But if we are able to develop that skill of stopping, observing, kind of taking a beat, focusing on our breath, um, we're more likely to be able to act in a way that's effective or know that maybe we need to wait and do something first, reflect more, uh, give ourselves a chance to kind of settle, settle down or whatever it is. Um, Okay, so that's really kind of an internal individual level um, that, that will minimize the likelihood of us becoming defensive, uh, you know, saying things or reacting in a way that might not be constructive. So there are some things we can do uh, interpersonally as well. So we talked a little bit about sort of self-observing, self-regulating. Then also the way that we interact and speak with each other and communicate is, is obviously very important as well. And so really kind of paying attention to uh, when we have the impulse, we may be very frustrated for good reason, um, but when we have the impulse to sort of go to a blaming sort of perspective. Um, we want to see if we can flip that and um, replace it with more of a sense of curiosity. Um, we can use neutral kinds of language like, you know, it seems to me that X, Y, or Z is happening, or my experience is that X, Y, and Z is happening. Um, is there, how could, is there a way that we could address this? So we're kind of uh, we're kind of acknowledging things neutrally and then looking for um, questions that can help us investigate how we can solve problems rather than focusing on sort of attributing uh, blame. And then um, some of these other strategies I've, I've sort of borrowed actually from Marsha Linehan, they're interpersonal strategies that really help uh, promote relationships uh, with psychological safety. Um, so sometimes it's, you know, speaking up to ask for what we need at work, whether it's clarification or information, um, you know, really owning maybe an impact that we've had on a team member. Um, perhaps we did or said something that was not ideal, and it's really okay to go back and own that even if it's something that you feel like, well, the, that moment has passed, it's over. Sometimes those things can sit with people and they can sort of create a weight. And so, you know, being able to go back and say, you know, I was thinking about it. And a while back when I said X, Y, or Z, I could sense that it, maybe we, we didn't really fully resolve that. Um, people generally uh, tend to respect somebody's willingness and ability to acknowledge when they've done something uh, that has had a difficult impact. Um, 
And, you know, always a good idea to not let things build up. You know, once confusion, resentment uh, starts to build, it obviously becomes much harder to um, uh, address that. And so these are all strategies that we use in our interpersonal relationships outside of work that are, are very important. Okay, then, you know, uh, um, uh, there, there are some, theme, uh, some things that we can do together as a team also to kind of help create uh, trust and, and uh, understanding amongst each other. You know, there's like the very sort of uh, low stakes thing is doing things that are just fun, you know, bonding as a team, um, you know, personal fun facts, those kinds of things are sort of a low level of vulnerability, but they are, can be very um, impactful in terms of bonding people. A little bit higher level of uh, self-disclosure vulnerability is having people share and reflect on um, what they feel is their greatest strengths and contribution to the team, and also what they see as sort of their edge for learning, um, where they feel as though their professional challenges are where they would like to see growth. And doing an exercise like this with a team can be very powerful. But one of the, the issues here is that um, there needs to be uh, enough people on the team that are willing to model sort of a, a level of being very genuine about this. You know, that it, it has to sort of there has to be enough vulnerability and willingness to be really um, uh, to be really genuine about sort of what you feel your strengths are, but also what you're working on. Um, otherwise, if it's very generic, it, it doesn't really tend to have much of an impact for people. Um, and then the, la the last kind of uh, level here that involves, I think, even more vulnerability is people giving feedback to each other. And so sharing from their perspective what they feel others are really doing that is incredibly valuable and helpful and important to the team and what they feel as though they would like uh, the other, their other team members to be able to do um, differently for the good of the team. And again, it's always helpful to have a team leader or supervisor um, maybe model being able to kind of receive this kind of um, feedback and input in a very sort of receptive and non-defensive way. Okay. Um, so another interesting uh, dynamic here is that um, especially in the kind of work that we do, and I know several people are making this point that, you know, the reason why we're showing up and being on teams is because we are trying to uh, deliver an intervention services to folks who have a lot of complex and uh, complex needs and are part of a lot of complicated systems, right? The work that we do is almost never simple. Um, and so in particularly in the kind of line of work that we're in, it, it is important that people have the ability to be able to debate and bring up different perspectives, right? Just like you're doing in the chat. Um, 
when each person sort of counterbalances others with like they're a different perspective, that's so important because it broadens everybody's understanding and perspective about the situation. And especially when we are doing work that is not simple, we need to be able to hear differing views and opinions because it leads us to a deeper understanding. So um, one thing to remember is that constructive conflict or debate uh, can be very important in the work that we do, but many times people do feel uncomfortable with conflict or even disagreement. Um, it's something that people may uh, try to avoid. Um, and it's important to differentiate that sort of constructive conflict or debate um, kind of expressing differences in ideas and concepts and views is very different from a personality kind of focused uh, attack, or it's also different from arguing when you're, you, there's a need for you to justify your position as being right, right? Like I'm arguing my point and I need to make it clear that I am right and the other person is wrong. Constructive conflict is not that. Um, when we're really kind of going back and forth in a constructive way, um, there is a goal, but the goal is not to win or be right. The goal is to come up with solutions or an understanding that is more robust than we potentially would have come to without some kind of debate or synthesis of different perspectives. Uh, and, and really attending to these different views and disagreements. Um, so, you know, it's really important when, you know, we're talking about uh, communicating with people in an open, transparent way, you know, but we can't like address every single microaggression because then we're going to get pulled off of our task. That's going to siphon energy away. That's really important because when you go back and forth, it helps you to kind of come to some understanding. Well, what is the best way to balance these kind of things? Um, I, I will tell you, I, the example that always comes to my mind when I think about this uh, principle of uh, making room for differences in views and perspectives, even when it can be heated and sometimes uncomfortable, um, was an experience that I had when I was working at a, a mental health agency um, where there was a really sort of some very heated debate. Um, and interestingly, it was around the issue of um, outcomes. It was around the issue of collecting uh, client outcomes, OMAs. And um, uh, there was some difficulty uh, figuring out how to handle, you know, it, it, it's so burdensome, as we know, for clinicians to do these things like OMAs. And in this particular meeting, there was one program director that was very, had strong feelings and said, we are going to keep track of this. And if the, if the person doesn't get a certain percentage of their OMAs in at a certain time, and if they've had a couple warnings, that is a performance evaluation issue that is going on their performance evaluation. Um, somebody on the other end of that uh, debate uh, who was looking very skeptical 
eventually started to, first she didn't want to speak up, but she eventually started to raise objections and say, there are many factors that are out of clinician's control. And I really worry about a very punitive approach to this. That went back and forth and it did get, <laughs> it got pretty heated. At times it was uncomfortable. And that conversation went over the course of a few meetings. What eventually happened there is that there was a solution that was arrived at that involved uh, somebody at the agency creating a database. And in that database, all of the clinicians could look up their name and they could get information about the number of outcomes they'd handed in, uh, whether it was outside the window, um, whether the client had refused to fill it out. All the information was there. They could check themselves to get up-to-date information about where they stood and what some of the reasons were. And it was such a good example to me of a solution that was arrived at. It was sort of this mixture of a supportive approach. We're gonna give people a tool. We're gonna to give them information to help them manage themselves. Um, at the same time, kind of raising the bar in terms of accountability. We're gonna also expect them to kind of keep track, but we're gonna help them. And um, if we had not stayed with that very difficult discussion, there's no way we would have arrived at this really creative, uh, amazing solution. Um, so uh, this is something that uh, may not be natural uh, because it can be uncomfortable, but it's important to think about staying with uh, the, this kind of debate. Okay, so there's some things that we can do to try to help people to be able to explore and express differences in views and opinions in a way that is constructive. Um, and the first thing to do is to um, really kind of help people to kind of stay with expressing differences and to notice, help people notice if they tend to have a certain pattern or kind of a habitual reaction to dealing with conflict or dealing with um, situations where there's, where there's a lot of sort of debate. Um, there's some typical kinds of common reactions or, or styles that people tend to have around uh, conflict. Um, an obvious one that is very common for a lot of people is just avoidance, you know, um, just really kind of sidestepping the whole thing, withdrawing altogether, shutting down around conflict. This is very common. Um, it could be that it's even more so in, the, in the people that go into the helping professions. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but, um, you know, it's certainly not unusual. Um, another common reaction is accommodating. So kind of minimizing the, you know, downplaying it, sort of just saying like, oh yeah, that's what I meant, or uh, really not being willing to sort of stand your ground and say, no, I really see it differently. Um, another kind of pattern that people can get into is sort of competing or, or being confrontational. And that's when we get in, into the need to show that our view is the right one and, and we need to uh, 
make it clear that the other person therefore uh, must be wrong. And that kind of dichotomy uh, of who is the right one and who is the wrong one tends to be uh, very unproductive. And it's not that there is actually one way of dealing with conflict that is the right way or the good way. You know, sometimes people feel like, oh, okay, what I'm supposed to do is be assertive. I, you know, I speak up uh, clearly, but without being confrontational. It's not that there is one right way. Um, sometimes avoidance is the best choice, right? Maybe the timing is not right. Uh, maybe a relationship with somebody is more important and the issue is not so important. Uh, and so could be at times that avoiding it is, is the best thing to do. Um, the issue here is noticing if you are in a pattern where you habitually uh, do the same thing regardless of the situation. So you're always avoiding it when conflict comes up or you're always competing or confronting. Um, and uh, noticing if you get into that kind of uh, pattern as a, a reflexive uh, response and then working with ourselves and helping others to kind of uh, shift that pattern and, and be uh, receptive to responding in a different way. So uh, our third um, ingredient here has to do with having a sense of commitment and buy-in to the goals and the priorities of the team. Now, this can sound pretty straightforward, right? Just, you know, making sure that everybody's, you know, committed, you know, in, in FSP, we say, you know, we do whatever it takes. And of course, we are, we are in this field because we are invested in, in the well-being of our clients. Um, but at the same time, uh, this idea of buy-in uh, can be complicated because people on the team might be doing what they are supposed to be doing. They might be sort of complying with the directives that they're given, but they may have some areas of confusion um, or they may have some areas of concern um, or disagreement with um, some of the uh, you know, uh, policies or uh, processes. Um, and uh, they may not be fully expressing that. So they've got that confusion or that concern or hesitation, but it's really not being brought out to the surface. And that can lead to ambivalence. It can lead to hesitation. Um, it can lead to some ambiguity for people about how to move forward um, in doing the work. So, um, Again, I'll give you a, a good example that comes to my mind when years ago, when we first started talking about integrated care um, in, in LA County, um, we were talking to clinicians about um, uh, bringing up with their clients things that were going on with their physical health. Um, assessing, you know, what kind of physical health conditions do they have? Uh, are they managing? Uh, what, what are their health behaviors? Um, do I have a goal in the treatment plan around physical health? And it, this was sort of a new conversation. This was a while back. And, you know, there was one big training that we were at where somebody raised their hand and they, and they finally said, 
uh, kind of the thing that a lot of people were thinking and maybe didn't say, which was, you know, I was always taught in my graduate program um, never to give medical advice. This is out of the scope of my practice. I'm trying to understand how to do this in a way that is not sort of overstepping my role. And when that person said that, it sort of opened up this uh, <laughs> floodgate in a way, but it was good. Other people started to chime in with, you, clearly they were having the same concerns and struggle. And uh, that brave person sort of gave people permission. And there were leadership in the room, you know, uh, executive leadership of the agency were there. And it was so important that they were able to hear that and respond to it. Um, and so we know that when, in order to have like genuine buy-in to the goals and the priorities, that people need to have a process. They need to be able to um, feel as though their thoughts and opinions are heard and considered and responded to. Now, it may be that the answer at the end of the day is, this is what we are doing. We are doing X and we are not doing Y. That's the decision. Uh, that's the expectation. But, but people really need to feel as though there's a thoughtful process about why things are done the way they are, how priorities are arrived at. Uh, they need to be able to voice uh, their thoughts and, and feel as though, again, that, that, that their sort of perspective is understood. Um, so that they can come to a place where they're able to uh, genuinely embrace the goals and the priorities without it being sort of, you know, complying with things on the surface, but really having a lot of ambivalence that, uh, that hasn't been addressed. Okay, so this, this issue of um, kind of having people really on the same page in terms of the goals and the priorities of the team, which as we know is, is, is a little bit easier said than done. But um, one of the things that's important, I think to recognize is that the particular type that, of work that we do in FSP and related programs, or we're working with people with severe mental illness and, and uh, multiple kind of levels of challenge with mental health, physical health, um, uh, housing, um, all of that, that the work that we do involves um, multiple kinds of priorities that at times can be, seem to be sort of competing with one another uh, or in contradiction actually. And that there's, there's sometimes there are difficult trade-offs that we might need to come to in the work that we do. And that can make our work quite um, challenging, you know, there isn't an easy formula. So um, there's been some interesting research on this. Uh, and it was actually research that was done with assertive community treatment teams. And I think most of you know that FSP uh, is based on assertive community treatment as a model, it's sort of a modification of that. And um, the research on uh, ACT identified these three kind of overarching types of goals that we tend to have in the work that we do. And they're goals that are related to um, the quality of the care and the services that we provide. Um, another set of goals that we have has to do with productivity, 
right? We have to, uh, that's an important factor that we keep track of. Um, and then there's another set of goals related to safety. And um, there's a wonderful article that talks about this. It's, uh, we will post this article with these slides. Um, and it's, it's down at the bottom of the slide here. It's called the Teamwork and Assertive Community Treatment Scale. And um, the researchers that, that did this work, um, what they found is that um, if, you're, if you're focusing on one of these areas, it might involve a trade-off in another. So for example, if you're taking time and resources to really focus on quality, that could take away from a focus on productivity and you know quantity. Um, conversely, if you're very focused on productivity, um, that can create tension in terms of really prioritizing, say, safety um, or quality-related goals. Th those can be difficult to balance. And in order to deal with that tension um, between these kind of competing demands, what they found is that different teams develop different kinds of norms and strategies um, to deal with these uh, kind of competing goals. But what's really interesting and I think really important about their findings is that um, on teams where people were able to identify and voice the uh, tension between these, um, the, their perceived incompatibility between these goals and to talk about their different ideas about how to deal with that. Those teams um, demonstrated more effective team functioning and better client outcomes. And um, those teams did better than the teams that did not engage in what the researchers ended up calling constructive controversy. So that's really good news for us because it means that there isn't one right way to do this. There isn't some formula about, you know, this is how you have to uh, sort of balance these different competing priorities that we have. Um, it's really more about the process and it's about be able, being able to support, um, again, this kind of uh, debate and, and what they've called con uh, constructive controversy. Um, that's what was associated with better team functioning and better client outcomes. Um, so I think that is important uh, to recognize. Our final ingredient here in terms of, uh, you know, working together and sort of having shared priorities and a clear sort of understanding of goals and priorities flows right into this next ingredient, which is um, accountability and attention to um, the quality of the care that people are delivering. And really having um, clarity and a commitment to the, the goals of the team kind of sets the stage uh, for us to be able to operationalize and kind of create very specific standards about what it is that we're expecting of team members. And um, this reminds me of the, of the point that was brought up earlier about expectations. Now, um, this point was made earlier. It was a really wonderful point about our expectations are often linked to our own past experiences, right? How we attach meaning to things and that can get in the way. Um, but also in this context, what we're talking about here is 
being very clear with the people that we work with about what they are expected to do in their work role, uh, making sure that that's really clearly defined. Um, so for example, you know, if we're told that we are supposed to be doing person-centered care or trauma-informed care, um, we need to know what that really looks like. How is that operationalized? Um, if we are told that we need to really address our clients' physical health, um, what is the expectation? Um, the agency that I worked at, they had a goal um, or an expectation that every clinician um, would have their client, all of their clients have one primary care visit a year. Once a year, they would go to a primary care doctor. Now, was everybody able to reach that? No, but it was important that it was defined as the goal. And um, that not only helps people to know if they're falling short, um, it helps people to know when they're doing really, really well. And when we can point out that um, there's successes and achievements, we need to have those expectations defined either way. If we're giving people feedback that they're not sort of hitting the mark where we need them to, but also uh, how do we know when we can say, we've done a fantastic job and we know because uh, we've, we've been able to reach this goal. So in distilling this down, I think working together at team, working well together on a team, this is not sort of esoteric. It's not some sort of um, super specialized knowledge. It really comes down to sort of a matter of persistence and discipline in doing these things on a regular basis, the key is being persistent and they build on one another. So um, when people are able to trust one another, at least have a certain baseline, you know, basic level of trust, they're more likely to be open and transparent about differences in ideas. They're more likely to be able to process that and debate things in a way that's constructive. That leads to a greater sense of commitment to our plans and our goals. And all of that leads to more accountability and being able to deliver on those plans uh, and reach kind of a, a high quality of care. So these things are sort of intertwined um, and they really have to do with kind of small um, decisions that we make sort of on a regular basis about how we work uh, with each other. I, I thought we might sort of I don't know, do a little exercise to kind of reflect on this a bit. And I think you all have already put a lot of things in the chat that sort of illustrate a lot of these concepts, but um, let's, we'll do this one for fun. Um, this, is, this is a vignette. Uh, okay, wait, let's see what we've got. Another comment was to aim to understand both our clients and one another. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's such a key uh, and, and it does go back to, I do think the comment about motivational interviewing was a, a great one that before we can influence change, we all know that we start from this grounding in understanding people's perspective. Uh, we can't just pull them along. 
Um, that goes for our clients and that goes for each other. So I, I think that's right. I, I definitely agree that it starts with understanding. Um, we don't really have anywhere to go, any leverage if we don't start from that. But let's see if this kind of jogs any thoughts for you all. Um, so this is just a, a, a vignette about Juan. Um, he's a clinician and um, he's in his team meeting and uh, he's talking about a client and he's irritated and frustrated. And he says, you know, my client left the boarding care again. He's out on the streets. This has happened multiple times with this client. Sometimes the client gets agitated and starts throwing things and uh, then goes AWOL and sort of disappears. And, um, you know, Juan is talking about this and he says, you know, I've tried everything. I've done everything that I can do. Sometimes people are just not motivated. You know, they just don't want to get better. There's, there's, you know, I've, I've done everything that I can. And the team leader says in response to this, um, well, you know, I know you mentioned that he started using meth again. So I, I don't know if there's much we can do, right? He's not going to stay in any kind of housing. You know, now he's, he's back using meth. We know that then he goes out on the street. I, I'm not sure there's much you can do. Um, Janet is another team member. She is looking frustrated about this. She's definitely having a reaction, but she sighs, but she doesn't say anything. Um, and then there's another team member who's kind of on their laptop the whole time. Uh, and this person doesn't even really seem to be following much of what's going on. They're just, you know, maybe catching up on notes or something. Um, um, okay, <laughs> so I got a, a great suggestion in the chat. You, so you see where I'm heading with this. We're thinking about, oh, what kind of, what, what would be some strategies if we were a team member, how might we respond or react uh, or intervene in some way uh, that might address these different domains? And um, starting with this domain of, of trust and safety, though we, we don't have to go in order, but uh, these are the, the, the basic sort of domains here. What might we do with this situation? Multiple people here. Um, to try to increase the sense of uh, trust and safety. Uh, what different voices and perspectives might we bring in to this conversation that could get people kind of critically thinking about uh, some of the views that are being expressed? Uh, what would be a shared goal uh, or priority for this client on, on this team? And uh, is there something here about standard of care expectations that, that we might want to clarify. Um, so we have one comment here about acknowledging everyone's frustration related to the client's hurdles and normalizing. Okay, so this is a great uh, comment um, that really goes to, I, I think really helping establish a sense of safety here, right? Um, acknowledging the frustration, it's really difficult uh, when you work with a client that, uh, that continues to um, go back to situations that we 
we do, we feel are not ideal for them. And we've worked really hard and they've, we've seen them make progress. And then, um, then they maybe go back to the situation that we feel is not the best. That's really a frustrating place to be. And we've all been there. Um, I would inform on the difference between being homesick versus street sick. Um, some of our clients are conditioned to be more comfortable. Oh, so yeah, sorry, this is what you verbalized. Yeah, beautiful. They're conditioned to be more comfortable in the streets without any rules. I would ask um, Juan to, to talk to the client about what he found safe about the street. So just a, again, beautiful motivational interviewing falls right in line with this person-centered care, right? Helping Juan to be able to shift in that way. Um, normalizing the frustration and also the population that we serve, reminding the clinician that oftentimes clients do re relapse and they jeopardize their housing. This is part of the process, right? It's not, we don't define it as abnormal, as a, um, it, as some kind of anomaly. It is, it, it's why we are here to, to, to help people with this process and that that's part of it. Um, normalize the frustration, generalize the symptom, normalize the team members' feelings. Yeah, that's great. A lot of normalizing. Establishing team rules and norms as we do in clinical supervision. This is a great one. Um, it goes into this sort of making sure that people are clear about what the goals are of the, tr of the treatment, right? Uh, maybe Juan needs to take a breather on this client today and revisit it later. Yeah, he may be preoccupied on something more pressing today. Okay, this is a very good point. Maybe later he can make a better concentration and come up with a better way to approach it. He's too invested to stop. Good point. You know, maybe this is not typical for Juan. Maybe there's something else going on for him and he's not in his most uh, ideal frame of mind to, to be empathic and uh, holding room for that as well. You know, maybe there's uh, something going on for, for one that he, and he needs to take care of himself. Yeah, encourage, now there are more comments about encouraging uh, self-care in staff. Um, oh, another good point about bringing up successes in the past. So uh, when people get very focused on, oh, you know, nothing is going right, this isn't, you know, working, uh, sometimes reminding uh, people of things have gone well in the past and we can lose our connection to that. Um, more suggestions in the, in the chat about linking uh, to family, um, whole person care. Yeah, ground rules for having a safe, space, all about parallel processing. All right. Oh my goodness. There's so much expertise in this group. Um, I think at the accountability level, in addition to clear expectations, another task is that people are open to check with each other about yeah, task progress, to share or consult when progress is less than targeted and about potential barriers from personal differing models and systemic, especially for uh, FSP and ongoing process, check-in and helping each other to stay on task. Um, yeah, this is a, a wonderful point. It can We can get into a lot of all or nothing thinking. I'm not sure if this is what you're saying. The, your comment is, my association to your comment is that like, it's easy to get into sort of all or nothing thinking. And so um, thinking about this in terms of shades of gray, right? Like there's 
areas of maybe progress. Um, it's not where we, we it may, may not be getting people to the ideal place that we want, but that doesn't mean they've made no progress. Um, and also thinking about barriers that there's, we talked about this uh, two days ago in part one of this training that all of these situations are connected to multiple layers of barriers, right? Um, so there could be lots of reasons why people fall out of housing. Um, and we don't want to make it all about the client having some kind of a deficit, right? Um, okay, sometimes we're, we're also clients just on the other side of the table. We have feelings that uh, can get depressed or sad or angry and we, that we can't feel normal. We need time out too. Yeah, we're all just we're all just human beings. Sometimes it gets overwhelming. Yeah, thank you. Um, what a wonderful, wonderful, rich discussion. I, I can't thank you all enough. Um, this is such a wonderful thing to think about just uh, in terms of where this gets challenging and lots and lots of uh, creative solutions that you all have Develop clearly over time and experience. So um, thank you. Thank you all for, for participating and making this so interesting and fun. So I'll give a brief uh, formal introduction and then go forward with um, complimenting a lot of what Lisa has already shared with us. My name is Larry Fernandez. I'm the uh, new, one of the newest additions to UCLA's Public Mental Health Partnership. And so it's definitely an honor to be here and providing a little bit of um, information about FSP team supervision. Um, just really quickly about myself, I've um, next month will be my 24th year working within the mental health systems here in Los Angeles County, with uh, mostly with the uh, with FS uh, not FSP but in general uh, DMH programs. And I have worked alongside an FSP program since uh, 2014, so since the inception of FSP. And so today, as I'm sharing this information, it comes by way of also um, just adding on to some of the things that Lisa has shared and also what we learned in day one, and then some practical experiences that I kind of been through myself. And at the same time, I've taken some notes to some of the things that uh, was that I heard during the comments. So I will be adding those in. So I hope you all kind of can uh, feel comfortable to just jump in either verbally or by chat. And I'll definitely address uh, and share any, um, any feedback to that. So here in this first slide, it's just kind of a parallel process, if you will, between a client's experience and a team member's experience. And in many ways, it's similar, right? Our, our client comes in to our facility and is really coming in to go through a process of, of, of different experiences, the outreach experience, the assessment experience, and then the ongoing treatment experiences, which can be seen in different phases. But during that time, the clients also engage with different staff members and within different cohorts, um, even if you will, to make sure that all of these three elements are done in a seamless manner. Well, on the team member's perspective, it's really in, in many ways uh, a parallel process where you know a, a team member might come across wanting or needing constant consultation, individual experiences when it comes to um, supervision, and then a team supervision. 
Now, for the sake of, uh, of, of the team supervision um, dialogue today, we're going to really focus on the, the third element, which is team supervision. Um, but I do want to just point out that that you know consultation and individual supervision definitely go hand in hand with with um, with creating the full experience of the team supervision within within the FSP team. So as we're as we're looking at just the effective experience of a supervisor, we're talking about um, encouraging autonomy, strengthening the supervisor's relations, the supervisory relationship. Um, allow for an open discussion, exhibit positive personal and, and professional qualities. Also demonstrating clinical knowledge and skills and, and really from a supervisor's perspective is being okay to acknowledge that, that there is maybe an area that as a supervisor, maybe you don't have and maybe we'll need to get some reinforcement on. And I think this goes back even to the recent point that I just mentioned about substance abuse. Um, and I think that uh, being able to, to identify that the team or even um, the, the, the agency you work with maybe has some areas that maybe need to grow in or, or really partner with it is, very, is very important to not only the, the team's morale, but also just to the clients that we're serving. So also providing constructive challenges, which allow for someone to continue to grow. So many times within an FSP team, one of the things that we're seeing, and as somebody had pointed out earlier, was the word burnout, is really how do we identify the strengths within an individual and maybe use them in a different capacity from time to time so that they really feel like they're, they're, they're the biggest contribution to the teams are really being um, provided to, by way of helping the clients out long term. And then engaging in a value and, and engage and in a valuable way in supervision. One of the things to keep in mind with, with um, the last area there of just the value of supervision is, is really um, demonstrating consistency. Um, is there an identified is there an identified amount of supervision that we're seeing? Is there certain um, is there certain expectations? And in, in a second, I'll really get into the the, uh, the number, if you will, based on the contractual experience of how many hours should be having um, should be occurring now based on transformation and things of that nature. So importance of supervision. Um, again, keeping in mind that uh, supervision is something that we usually hear as the words of, of you know, it being um, uh, on a consistent basis. One, secondly, we also hear um, group supervision, consultation, and, and the team supervisory experience. Um, as I'm breaking these down into different things, I wanna keep in mind that uh, just the overall experience of, of individual supervision is really focusing on the one-on-one -on -one experience. Um, does the staff member um, come to the supervision session already prepared? Is there a preparation experience that the supervisor has allowed for the person to come in with? And is there is there a routine experience that one might have in terms of being able to um, to just feel comfortable enough to say, you know, this is this is my need as an individual supervision um, experience. Is there a supervisory plan? And so as we look into group supervision, um, the, one of the differentiations between group supervision, um, in addition to it just being an individual format versus a group format, is that in group supervision, oftentimes we're looking at administrative elements too. 
we're, we're talking about things sometimes like billing and, and operational experiences. And so we want to keep in mind that that as we look at um, some of the group experiences, and uh, a staff member may also um, have the need to just have a focused individual session time that's a set um, experience without interruption. Um, consultation, again, um, in this experience is really looked at as a check-in system. Sometimes it's problem-based. Sometimes the, the experience here with a consultation is really looking at there's a problem that needs to be solved. And from this experience, what is taking place um, in terms of, um, you know, it being, um, in terms of it being um, a problem solution or update. For instance, uh, a, a client may have uh, relapsed, a client may have lost housing for that moment. So during this consultation piece, it may be a short, shorter amount of time in which someone might say, um, you, know, I, um, you know, to the supervisor, I really want to check in with you about a particular topic or a particular issue that's going on now. So taking, taking into stride that the consultations do not replace um, either a team supervision experience or an individual experience. Um, uh, you know, I know that we all get tied up into many different things throughout the day, but one thing that um, that has has often been feedback for me as I'm grow I was growing as a supervisor was the need to not um, to not discontinue any supervision by way of just constant consultations. And as we look at the team supervision um, meetings that we're talking about today is really how are we incorporating the FSP model into this experience? Um, for instance, are we looking at um, um, things very specific in terms of plan oriented? Are we looking at um, the day-to-day -day experiences that, that the team is needing to prepare for? How many, um, how many times a week are we meeting um, with our team specifically to prepare them to really work as best as possible with the clients that are in front of them. And how much of this experience is also incorporating the FSP model, right? For instance, everything from the whatever it takes to um, the incorporation of flex funds to the understanding of how we are really aggregating the, the experience of um, linkages and referrals through whether that be outreach and engagement or even through the process of, of, of discharge and, and successful termination for a client. So in clinical supervision, there's three different elements, um, administrative, educational, and supportive. And I know as we're looking to create a team experience, we want to make sure that we're also identifying these three important areas as well um, in a way that allows for everyone to continue to grow um, and also meet the, the needs of our, our fiscal contracts, if you will. Administratively, um, you know, we're looking at things like billing, scheduling times, um, you know, hours that, a, that, that our staff are working and then reassuring that, you know, everyone's role is, is really being met with, if you will, on a regular basis. And from an administrative perspective, oftentimes, you know, if we are not tending to, um, to incorporate some of this time in its own given time, it can bleed into a team, um, into the team experience or the group supervision experience. So we wanna make sure that we're also allotting for the administrative time to take place um, outside of a team experience so that, that um, no time is, is, uh, is, is um, diminished, if you will. Um, 
The second one is educational. I think at this point, the supervisor is really looking at um, feedback, um, really teaching, coming from a perspective of, um, you know, it's just not one level. Supervisor really is looking at um, various levels, right? We're looking at um, making sure that within the process of supervision, we're, we're um, tending to someone who's a case manager, someone who is also a therapist. Um, for that matter, also for someone who's a COD counselor. And how are we working within this process to make sure that our experience of supervision is really allowing for each and every staff member to feel incorporated and feel like their contribution is very, is very um, complementary to the team. As uh, we're looking at the educational pieces, what is it exactly that every team member may need from an FSP perspective, right? Also, um, is there some other form of learning that has to take place within this supervision experience? And then the third component there is the super, uh, the, excuse me, the supportive experiences, just making sure that the supervisor has the adequate training to be able to support and guide um, the team, right? Um, one of the things that has come up um, over the years for me has also been to be able to be okay with um, acknowledging that there is maybe a skill set that I have to also incorporate or maybe learn from. Um, how do I utilize the strength within my own team of being able to say, um, maybe this person here can give us a little bit of a feed, uh, excuse me, a little bit of, of information that would allow for us to continue to grow um, as a team. So as a supervisor, it's really being able to be comfortable uh, with, with, uh, with the areas that we can just continue to expand. As now we're focusing on these in more detail, um, we're starting with the, um, with the administrative uh, aspects of supervision. Um, I know it's tough to blend so many different things as a supervisor into your daily experience, but really ensuring that the work performance is in a manner that's consistent with agency policies. And I think that um, it's natural for a supervisor to want to overemphasize maybe one experience or another, um, maybe based on one's comfort level, but it's also, it's really a healthy balance, really. How do we continue to perform um, in a way that we're going to ensure that agency policies are being met, one, that the FSP services are being delivered effectively, and then at the same time that all our um, additional experiences that are um, DMH timelines or clinical work in essence are really meeting the needs of, of each one of these things. Um, as we look at the, uh, the administrative focuses is blending our continual growth with the administrative experience. So in the educational uh, piece here of supervision is really being able to break it down into two different parts is really looking at both the clinical work um, that's taking place educationally. So also referred to as the clinical supervision piece and involving in teaching and supervising while also developing self-awareness at the same time as a supervisor is really looking at um, what part of this experience here can I contribute and how, how can I use my own team to be able to flourish and share their experience. Um, one personal experience that comes to mind is having had um, COD counselors on staff as an FSP team um, has been, uh, was really a blessing in many experiences because oftentimes the teams the, the team lacks some of that experience and COD counselors were really able to maybe share different perspectives. And I know that's something that Lisa talked about earlier is really just sharing perspectives and being able to not just think that um, 
the clinical supervisor will be bringing in all those elements. And then in addition to that, um, this is done by routinely reviewing FSP staff's interaction with their clients and then teaching them on how to provide specific services that, that are being, uh, being met by the client. For instance, um, whether that be through case management is really the linkage experience. Um, how does um, how efficient are, are, are the case management experiences happening as we know that a high percentage of the services being through FSP case management experiences are the linkages being prepared effectively are we being able to um, are we being able to provide the um, the um, the um, discharge experiences through hospital settings if you will and just complementing the educational experiences of our supervisee so I know I've said a lot so far, so I want to—I just want to check in to see if there's any questions, just in relation to this educational piece of supervision and how um, we as supervisors or a supervisee, as we have a variety of folks here in, in this training, is really how you know how has this experience been for anyone to be able to maybe include yourself into the growth experience and to the learning experience from your own team and. How have you learned to um, expand um, your own team by allowing somebody to, to share their input? So educational, the educational experience um, in terms of uh, supervision um, is also something that we do have to be mindful of when it comes to the, um, the awareness that we are juggling many different hats from an educational perspective is, is not the easiest. You know, we have, um, again, paraprofessionals, case managers, therapists, and um, a variety of other folks like occupational therapists and, and uh, even COD counselors. So really, how do we define our role and how do we really prepare to be able to be that person that's going to pr provide the experiences to multiple, um, to multiple supervisees? So supportive supervision focuses on enhancing job performance by decreasing job-related stress that interferes with work performance. Um, secondly, FSP supervisors increase the supervisee's motivation and helps develop a work experience or environment that enhances the work performance. So as we're looking at this experience of, of, of the supportive supervision, we're really talking about now blending a relationship experience in terms of enhancement. Um, um, you know, building a relationship with the supervisee. Um, sometimes, you know, in this case is really looking at was what was said earlier um, by, uh, by a few in the comments is bringing things in like motivational interviewing. Um, also, um, in addition to that is really, um, you know, identifying milestones for the supervisee, uh, things that uh, can be reviewed and, and focused on to continue to work on and if if we you know if the process experience of uh, the process of supervision continues to to expand, sometimes we will get supervisors, um, supervisees, sorry, that also lend a lot of um, information that that may be getting in the way in their own experience, like you know whether it be a personal experience or an environmental experience. How do we really provide the support needed to that supervisor um, to just um, complement their continual um, experience within our environment of work. So as we're looking at now, um, I've kind of gone through just kind of a general experience of what a supervisor would do. 
and I, I, I know that some of that might be um, a bit in general. Uh, I do want to now bring in the experience of an FSP model. So a, a team model of service delivery is based on the notion that the client will be served by an entire FSP um, um, team with a variety of ex uh, expertise. One team member will continue to serve as a client's primary clinician, but clients should be seen by multiple team members regularly. So as we're looking at this experience of FSP, we, we think of the notion of shared caseloads. Now for some folks here, um, you know, the shared caseload concept has probably been something that you've already um, had an experience with for many years. For others, a shared caseload is maybe something new that your agency may be blending into for purposes of um, FSP transformation or just because it's been the model of, um, that has been highlighted to be um, the expectation. And so as we're looking at it, it's really um, looking together as how um, several people can really blend into helping one another to uh, meet the needs of the client. Um, I like a comment earlier, as she mentioned, um, strength-based language is really how do we as FSP supervisors or even the supervisee um, incorporate a language of strength base within this model, right? Continuing to um, identify that yes, this job is difficult and it is oftentimes a struggle to get our clients to maybe meet some goals we've established. But at the same time, how do we, um, how do we highlight our staff and or, or the supervisee uh, to continue this experience, right? As we're looking back to Juan's experience on how Juan had a hard time with maybe just some of the language. And then we see the language that's used by the supervisor and that language as well is not really the most um, uh, motivational, if you will, in, 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 in overall experience, kind of putting the onus back on the client that the client isn't able to, to um, accomplish in many ways. Um, so it, here, the one analogy that I'll share with you in terms of just FSP team as a model is really the analogy of, the, uh, of the, uh, building a ship is really um, looking at um, what material we have in front of us to build this ship, right? So in this case, who are the team members we have and what are their expertises that they have? Um, what are some things that we can really look at within the internal strengths we have as a team and really blend those together um, to be able to serve all of our clients, right? As we're, we're doing this kind of caseload that's, uh, that's shared and everyone will have a contribution to someone's success. Um, after identifying the materials, if you will, is also really testing the waters, really being, you know, seeing how some of this works. Uh, and it may not work for every client, right? Maybe in this case, back to Juan's experience, maybe uh, one, one um, staff member may work out very well with Juan, and maybe in this case, Juan may not even be the identified person to work well with that particular client, or maybe Juan is maybe at a point where he needs a break. So really um, being prepared to test the waters and saying, okay, we have a couple different formats that maybe we can use internally to really help this experience be more fruitful for the client. And the next experience there um, would be then the monitoring and reviewing experience, right? Um, how do we really check in with our team and, and collect feedback and, and information on how they felt we were able to help this particular client, right? 
Um, is there a better design maybe to, um, to help a particular client for, um, for a particular reason, whether that be um, uniquenesses of, of culture, whether that be um, you know, the presenting problem, um, whether that be, for instance, substance abuse, homelessness, uh, a need for additional case management, a physical disability, whatever the case may be, is really helping that experience. And um, you know, in addition to that, would be just the the navigation, um, you know, of of this experience, um, being comfortable as an FSP supervisor or even as a supervisee to be able to share language within the team that um, it is okay to maybe change things up every once in a while. Um, if, um, if there is a system that worked with one person, um, maybe, you know, look at, uh, look at uh, what might be di uh, different for another person. So again, as we, um, as we continue to learn, uh, as, we, as we continue to look into this FSP model, I invite you to kind of keep that analogy of just the, of the, the, uh, the building of the ship on how it's a continuous process that really never, um, uh, that, that there's no ending process to that we're conti continuously revising and really reformatting based on our clients needs. So as we get ready, as we get ready to, um, um, you know, embark in this experience as an FSP supervisor, you know, there should be some, some clear objectives, right? And some of these objectives include promoting team communication, trust, um, and cohesion, collaborating on developing team goals and tasks, um, reinforcing the whatever it takes model, providing supportive feedback from a team's approach, and also encouraging team members to identify possible team solutions. Um, so, in in looking at um, in in promoting team communication, is really built, building a language that's comfortable for everyone. Um, you know, some some. Um, some um, supervisors may weigh in on maybe trusting one person versus the other and, and really maybe staying away from um, always identifying the same person to be the lead in a particular difficult case or maybe a case that maybe lends itself for a particular diagnosis and really identifying an opportunity to even allow a person that is still in maybe in a growing opportunity to maybe shadow that person and come in to learn um, with a hands-on experience. And also um, collaborating on, uh, on developing team goals and tasks. You know, one of the things that, that um, we have to keep in mind is that, um, that when we have um, such a, a wonderful team of, 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 of um, passionate um, FSP clinicians, case managers, and so forth and so on, is really how do we develop goals that work for all of us? Um, I think as a supervisor, not having um, not having the 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 mindset that I'm coming in knowing everything, or I have to be the one to answer all the questions. It's really being able to depend on the team as well, and be able to delegate even some of the growing opportunities to say. That brings me to my next point of really role modeling the whatever it takes um, experience for FSP. Um, you know, oftentimes we use the analogy of rolling up your sleeves, and I think. Uh, here we're really reinforcing it by by doing it uh, on on a on a modeling basis is really what does the team need from me as a supervisor 
Do they need me to take a more um, assertive experience? Do, do I need the one to be, um, should I be the one going out to maybe see what's going on with this particular experience? Um, or am, am I okay just being the supportive uh, person within the office? Um, you know, oftentimes the best way that I have only, and I, and I share this from my experience, that my best learning in the FSP world was really being able to go out and meet the, the supervisees or life outside of the office and the FSP experience as being able to see, okay, when you went to this person's home, this is what it looked like. And I was able to then get a mental picture on maybe some of the struggles. Um, you know, one thing that uh, one experience that comes to mind for me is um, had an, had a, um, had someone who was living in service area seven as a client, one of my staff was asked to go out to meet with them. And um, they really painted a picture of everything was okay, but the supervisor really seemed very anxious and, and very um, hesitant to go out to meet with this client. And so I made myself available to go out. And as I went out, one of the things I learned is that everything was, um, was maybe, it was very opposite of what had been painted. Uh, one of the, uh, from the very simple things to lack of parking in the area, to the person living in the back apartment that we had to walk through where there was a dog. Um, in addition to that, that the client was home alone and oftentimes the symptoms were very, very intense that um, for, for a staff member to show up alone was very challenging. And so when later discovered through supervision and conversation was that the staff member felt at that point that they just really couldn't reach out to another team member. And so it was my experience of learning there to be able to say, you know, how many others um, have gone through this experience? What is something that we can do a little bit differently? Are there suggestions that would help this team immediately to grow from this so that we all feel like we're either complementing the, te the team or we have support needed when we are in an experience similar to um, the clinician that I went out to? And then encouraging team members to identify possible team solutions. You know, um, oftentimes we see that uh, we have staff that have come from different places of work. They have their own training experiences. They have, um, you know, I, I, you know, even had their own uh, abilities to maybe show up to our our um, our place of employment already with a full, you know, toolbox of ideas and really. How do we nourish that? How do we nourish them to bring those out and feel comfortable enough to say, hey, this is something that I've done in the past, or this is a contribution that I can share. And, and really just encouraging that from a perspective of conversation, uh, of safety. Um, and, and this is back to Lisa's point of psychological safety is being able to just say, you know, uh, we're in an experience here that everyone should feel safe enough to, to contribute. And, and there is no wrong or right answer. You know, and I, I think from that end is really being able to promote that experience of your feedback is valuable, one. And secondly, even if your contribution that you're sharing today may not be um, the thing that we go with today as a suggestion, but it doesn't mean that we're eliminating it. It might be something that we can take and use for the next client. So as we look at the, um, the dynamics here for just the team meeting desired process, we're looking at four different components that we're trying to really, um, we're really trying to accomplish. And I, again, I invite you to think back to Juan's experience, right? 
now we're sitting in the meeting and we're all in this experience and really what do we want out of this experience you know um do we want to be that staff member that was on Quant's team that really just was checked out um maybe on the laptop maybe completing notes um or do we want to feel that there's a process or, or or a purpose for each of us to be there regardless of what our contribution is right and so that's um that starts us off with the team working experience is really making it an enjoyable experience for everyone right and making sure that within this team experience there's experiences that others feel like that wholeheartedly the staff is backing each other up right for instance in this case um juan may not come to um, the team and say you know what this this client right now is just very very overwhelming or it's too much for me you know having an experience within a team that somebody may raise their hand and say you know what juan i, I you know what I, I i i got your back on this one you know let me let me go out and, and and try to see if I can find the client for you. Or I've worked with this client before, so also let me try to you know work with the client for the next week or so. Is really having that experience that allows for someone to feel like we're all contributing in some way. Um, also, um, you know, encouraging input in terms of um, this experience when it comes to individual expertise, which is our next point is knowing that everyone comes from a different walk of life and their experience is really um, a, a really valuable asset to the FSP team's desired process, right? Um, here's where I, I come back to some of the, the moments, the points that I made earlier, is having had the experience or pleasure, I, I would say, of having a, a substance abuse counselors on F, FSP teams is really utilizing as a, um, using them as a vile, viable um, asset and really a cornerstone to the FSP team is contribution by way of feedback, previous experiences, or even what to do with this particular client. And maybe myself, not having had that substance abuse, um, you know, formal experience would know, right? And the next thing is team feels supported. Um, you know, they trust that whatever the solution is that, um, that that we're okay with it. Um, your suggestion may not be have um, may not be the one that was taken, or maybe uh, you you may you may feel like you know two or three of the staff members are siding with someone else on a different decision, and being okay with that, being okay with the fact that a decision is made by a team, and that 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 team has agreed that maybe this is the best avenue for this particular um, crisis or or particular issue that we're dealing with with this particular client. And then uh, the last one is cohesion and trust. And the key thing here to keep in mind is that conflict and disagreement doesn't mean that there isn't cohesion and trust. It's actually opposite, as we've seen in, in the very last slide um, that, that, um, that, are, um, that Lisa presented, is really being able to be okay with the fact that conflict and disagreement is something that is healthy in a team. Um, you know, if we all see everything the same way, or we all identify the same um, option as a solution, then it really takes us down to a lack of diversity and maybe, maybe even um, a, a, a fear of maybe even being able to share different um, ideas. So from this perspective, it's being able to know that cohesion and trust is extremely important from a building block perspective um, for, for a team process. 
but in, uh, but but being okay and being comfortable with the fact that there may be some disagreements and conflicts. And as a supervisor, being okay with that. If someone challenges your experience of what um, of what someone has to say, and it may be opposite of what uh, you believe um, in terms of maybe the reason or, or the, the way uh, the way to solve a particular problem. So some steps on implementing the effective um, FSP team experience. Um, first, first is um, um, schedule. Is looking at um, you know what kind of schedule really fits the team experience that we're looking at here. You know, in terms of um, in terms of of when is the best day to have this kind of meeting that we're supposed to be having on a regular basis, right? Is the team available more in the morning? and more in the afternoon. Um, I say this because an, as an FSP provider, you might, you, might have, uh, you might be serving more children or you might be serving more adults. And I've, um, you know, going back to just what we would consider the core treatment times of availability, outside of times that are you know, summer, um, let's think about just children in general. You know, they spend a lot of time in, in, um, in school. So do we identify maybe a team meeting that is during the time where most of our clients that are children maybe are in school so that we're readily available to be able to provide the services um, at the time that they're not in school. Um, separate from the adult experience in which maybe the scheduling may be a little bit earlier to be making ourselves available for later afternoon evenings. So um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of attendance is making sure that, that the team is bought into the attendance experience and knowing that, yes, there is flexibility for someone who's dealing with a crisis at the current moment, but I think that should be also identified. Um, you know, for instance, bringing it up to the supervisee that it is okay that they step out of the room to um, answer the call of a potential crisis, maybe um, jail linkage calling or maybe a hospital calling about a discharge. But outside of that is really making sure that there is an attendance um, expectation and that, you know, we are meeting um, contractually what we're talking about earlier, which is really making sure that we have the majority of our team present, right? Um, meeting structure is, is um, considering um, everything from environment to, um, you know, is this a good place for us to meet um, in terms of um, location? Um, one of my experiences in the past was I had a, um, a, a meeting um, room that was a bit small and some of the staff sat around the circular table and then some of the staff sat around the outside of the circle. And one of the things I noticed after time that those that are outside of the immediate circle really contributed less, really tended to be disengaged at some point and oftentimes maybe um, just checked out. So you know, my thought was, okay, how do we find uh, maybe a meeting structured environment that would allow for all of us to be able to feel um, that there's a good sense of connection, one, maybe, um, you know, um, eye contact availability, and, and then also that, that um, everyone feels comfortable within the space. Now, obviously, right now, given the, uh, the process of COVID, you know, we're doing things online, so it might be a, a little bit different, but just some things to keep in mind in terms of meeting structure. Um, in terms of communication flow, um, you know, keeping in mind that you know messaging is important. Um, it's okay for um, 
for um, one as a supervisor to say, I don't know something, to be able to identify the what ifs and, and, and the, the what are nots in terms of communication flow, um, to feel okay with um, coming back to um, a supervisor or even the team to say, I don't know this particular experience or I don't know this particular answer. Let me please uh, um, you know, gather some information and get back to you about that. And crisis planning is, is really narrowing it down to how do we prepare to um, deal with crisis on a regular basis, right? Um, is if we're, as we're planning this meeting is having really an, uh, an agenda experience, if you will. Um, during the beginning part of this meeting that we meet with on a regular, on a, almost a daily basis, if you will, is what do we cover first? Do we spend most of our time covering the crisis experience to make sure that we're all on the same page? Um, do we allow for um, all the contributions to be collected um, quickly so that we effectively um, plan for the crisis, including weekend crisis? And then from there, maybe scale down to new referrals, clients that are in an outreach and engagement experience, and then maybe segue into maybe clients that are graduating soon or in the process of being transferred to another provider. And the last point being debriefing is really talking about the debriefing experience. Um, I have found that in my own experience that the debriefing experience um, not only was um, vital to um, the team's um, success, but also the continuation of, uh, of the morale and um, just cementing us as a team is really being able to say, okay, we, we have all just went through this experience with a particular client. How can we sit down and talk about it um, uh, in terms of maybe by the end of the day, whether that be through Zoom or face-to-face, -face, whatever you know, opportunities you have, is being able to, to really allow yourself to share an experience with the supervisees so that they don't carry this home and really incorporating from that angle, then what else can be done to maybe do a follow-up as a self-care experience? What would be the next move? Maybe, um, you know, um, maybe asking the supervisor, you know, I know you just went through this crisis today and it seemed that it was a bit heavy. What is, what is your plans um, to maybe take care of yourself this evening? You know, whether that be, you know, simply, you know, encouraging something or just, um, um, recommending something that maybe uh, that that they're requesting, whether that be um, you know an hour off, you know, you know some some maybe the next day coming in a little bit early because they spent um, the entire evening working with a client um, trying to get them hospitalized. Um, also thinking about just in general, just the atmosphere that we're trying to contribute here in terms of overall um, extending an experience of 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 space, of, of um, calmness, and really having us as a, as, a, as a unit having an experience of team experience that's uninterrupted. So just some areas to, uh, to avoid within team supervision is really the imbalance of power. Um, if um, as a supervisor is thinking that you have to have the answer, you have to know everything, and being able to trust that others bring a sense of, uh, of contribution. Inaccurate messaging is really, you know, being okay with being able to say, I don't know, instead of 
sending a message of inaccurate information, whether that be about a particular FSP policy, an agency policy, or whatever the case may be. And the next thing is uniformity, is really being able to be comfortable about, you know, creating an experience that then becomes recognizable and creates and blends into becoming a culture so that when a new staff member comes in, they fit right into a, a uniform experience of culture that you all as a team have created together. Yeah. And um, the, the area of being inflexible is, is something that we have to be mindful of because everyone needs flexibility and flexibility allows for us to continue to grow and learn and really able to be ourselves to contribute, um, uh, continue experiences. And then the unethical experience is definitely an area to avoid because it's important for us to check in with our supervisees as to what did they take from the feedback that was just given by the team or even from myself in an individual supervision experience, making sure that they really did, um, you know, take the information I was sharing in, in the clearest way so that we avoid any unethical experiences by way of a mistake and not necessarily on purpose, but just some, some, um, some mishap of, of miscommunication. And then the untrained experiences to avoid is um, assigning someone in an experience where they're not comfortable or, or, or put, placing someone in an experience where they're not gonna be able to accomplish and us knowing that is really what is the strength this person has. And, and this is to the point of, of here, you know, training. And I will highlight, you know, us here with the UCLA's uh, Public Mental Health Partnership. And back to, to the point that Ch Chelsea made earlier, I would have loved to have this experience early in my career 20 odd years ago to be able to know that I could access some such rich information to, to monitor view at my own pace or to sign up for because it really allows for our teams to grow and continue to contribute effectively. So those are some areas to avoid. But again, for all of the areas to avoid, there's absolutely experiences that we can place and uh, replace them with. In the interest of time, I'm going to um, um, just kind of summarize this experience here so that we can get into our last slide. And then it's just here's the necessary disposition of team environment is again, just making sure that we all work together as a team to create a, um, a working uh, environment that's welcoming, um, friendly by way of atmosphere. Um, of course, that includes identifying and being able to identify when maybe someone's not having the best day possible, it, encouraging confidence, um, even when you know something is said or even a mistake is made is continuing to encourage confidence, promote honesty so that someone can share how they're feeling about their day or their experience they're having, um, the continual open communication um, in whatever format works for the team, and then role modeling the flexibility. To the right, just some areas to keep in mind, demonstrating empathy, encouraging attendance, acknowledging the challenging moments being genuine and definitely establishing a moment or excuse me a culture of self-care this brings me to the point that I, I wanted to make earlier is knowing that sometimes even us as professionals know we need it um, but we don't say it and so being able to be comfortable 
to identify our teammates and, and, and check in with them and encourage them to take their, their needed time when we see that maybe they are not 100%. And that'll really back to the point of us being one complete body would allow for that body to continue to be 100%. So I'm just going to highlight the last bits of Juan's vignette and what a team could, could be doing to really help this experience. So as we know, Juan expressed that um, um, some people are just not motivated uh, to get better. And the supervisor then responds, I know you mentioned that he started using meth again. So I don't think there's much we can do. He won't stay in any type of housing. And then we also have the additional staff members that may not be prepared or motivated to, um, to, to um, be part of this meeting. So to these experiences, um, our next slide will help us um, maybe have a, a, a different perspective on how to approach it. Okay, so we're looking at um, um, a couple approaches to consider. We have the expertise, we have the team experience, the supervisor experience, and Juan's experience. So from this experience with Juan, from an, F, uh, from an ex, uh, expertise experience, is really maybe identifying who on the team has some training with um, substance abuse or relapse prevention and can work alongside one. Uh, and maybe also who has some um, expertise and the knowledge experience of substance abuse or even housing that could contribute to contribute by way of input. As a team, the entire team can validate one's experience, right? There can be a created backup plan to increase re-engagement and communication and prepare for the what ifs, including clinical crises relapse experiences and emergency housing. So this can be an ongoing experience to really know that the entire team can take that responsibility on, not just for Juan's experience, but for all experiences of everyone. And in this case, for the supervisor, really identifying Juan's level to, uh, Juan's, Juan's ability to work with this particular client. Should there be another person assigned to this case? Identifying a reason that other, uh, um, identify the reason why other staffs are, di are disinterested. Are they burned out? Are they lacking training? Do they have some level of fear of speaking up? And really begin to work, you know, to welcome the feedback. And also the supervisor can utilize positive language that can continue to motivate, encourage, and to support the team process. And lastly, Juan can trust the team process and allow the colleagues to share different perspectives that may work for him. And so this would allow for Juan to continue to feel like he's getting support and also being part of this team. Lisa and Larry and Chelsea, amazing job. Um, Larry, any final bits, any comments? No, just thank you all for joining us. Content? And thank you so much for, um, for your wonderful input and, and great um, feedback. All of you, thank you so much, Lisa. Uh, thank you all. It was it was a pleasure. 